Hello and welcome to YHTV's Magical Medical Tour. This is episode 31. I'm Christina Suzama, and with me is our wonderful medical guide, Dr. Glenn Woolman. Hello, Glenn. <laughs> <laughs> Greetings, Christina. <laughs> and welcome, everybody, to uh, Magical Medical Tour. I'm Dr. Glenn Woolman. I will be your co-host as we travel each week through the healthcare galaxy, searching for ways towards optimal health. So in uh, the, the galactic trip this week, there was a uh, special moon festival. Mm -hmm. Did you celebrate? Of course, you have to celebrate. Part of it's oh. because the moon cakes, you know, traditionally in the Chinese culture, they have these, those wonderful moon cakes that are stuffed with that lotus paste mm -hmm. and that salty egg in the middle. Mm. And it's like so yummy. You have to celebrate Moon Festival. Are you kidding me? <laughs> Did you celebrate? Yeah, of course. I took pictures of the moon. <clears throat> I received your picture of the moon. I know. The moon blessings. That was good. Had a good time. Uh, today, of course, I'm very excited again because we're going to interview a uh, long-term dear friend and colleague uh, and a cohort in emergency medicine, uh, Dr. Robert Gayu. Uh, he's uh, been a medical director of his emergency department. He's currently an, uh, an emergency department physician. He's worked uh, in many different places uh, helping humanity. And I will say this even before we start speaking, that um, he was uh, elected one year as physician of the year of the hospital. And I just want to say that that's very special because physicians vote, nurses vote, a lot of different people vote. And it's it's really based on someone who has this special combination of doing great medicine and being a great humanitarian. And that's the person that uh, Dr. Robert Gayu is. And I would like to introduce you to each other right now. Robert, welcome. Good morning, Glenn. Good morning, Christina. Thanks for having me on the program. And I might add uh, that Dr. Woolman was also once elected Physician of the Year. Oh. And there are more than two <laughs> physicians at our hospital. Well, hello, Dr. Robert Gayu. Thank you for joining us on our show, and thank you for honoring us and our community. And now we get to get, get to plunge into more juicy emergency medicine stuff. <laughs> I have to tell you, uh, Robert, that uh, Christina loves the juicy, gory stuff. So uh, somewhere along the way, we have to make sure we cover something like that. And if you can see her, you will you'll be able to register the amount of juiciness and goriness by the bounces, <laughs> number of bounces that happen. So, Bob, what I usually like to do as the medical guide is to tell our viewing audience uh, some kind of a journey that we may be taking today. But as we both know in emergency medicine, we never know what, when, where, how, or why. So the theory is that we'll start out learning a little bit about why you went into medicine, what uh, gave you the bug to be a healer, and where your journey took you. We want to talk about being a director of an emergency department and your views of emergency medicine throughout the years. We want to give some hints and uh, tips and information, knowledge to our uh, viewers, our global viewers, so that uh, they can uh, make better decisions, especially in emergencies. And uh, 
who knows where else we'll go from there. We'll share some uh, war stories. How's that sound? Sounds like fun. Excellent. So let's start with just the very beginning. Uh, what? When did you decide to become a healer? What brought you to that? And, and then maybe include why you chose out of all specialties emergency medicine. Sure, sure. I'd be glad to. Well, I was uh, a very good student uh, going through high school, so I, I knew I had a lot of opportunities to me and that, or open to me. And originally, I had imagined I probably would be a scientist of some sort and probably a biologist. Um, I started off in college in physics and math and biology, leaving my options open, uh, and soon realized that physics uh, was not going to be my calling because um, half of my first year physics class was smarter than me in physics. <laughs> so, I, so I switched over to biology. Um, my um, experience as a teenager, um, unfortunately, I lost my parents early in life. And um, the thing that motivated me for medicine was some of the compassionate care that I saw, particularly my mother received in, in a hospital. Uh, none of us had been sick before. So it was really my one and only exposure to what medicine was like. And really from, from the beginning of illness uh, all the way through to her uh, unfortunate death. And I carried that with me. And, um, and in about second year university, I made the switch over to a pre-medical course. And I followed, followed that through. Um, I actually took some years off to travel a little bit, get some uh, worldly experience, um, and then came back and, um, and entered medical school. As far as emergency medicine, uh, there really was no specialty at that time, as Dr. Woolman knows. It, it was started in the early 80s as a specialty. And during my medical training, um, I, was, I actually grew up in Canada. I was sent to a very remote community. At that time, uh, Canada had new national health, and they were trying to train us all to be general practitioners. So I was sent to a remote city in northern British Columbia called Fort St. John. Oh, wow. That was really just, remote then. <laughs> it's, so, it's so remote and unpleasant that they have a statue of a mosquito outside the town, which is very representative of the, of the uh, life experience up there. Uh, a but statue fact, of a mosquito? <laughs> mosquito. Uh, and it's, uh, it's about 15 feet high. But uh, it was a, a life-changing experience for me because they had a small hospital and about four doctors in town. And so I slept in the hospital, and they asked me to work in the emergency room and just call them with the cases that I would come across. And I was only a fourth-year student at the time. So for three months, um, I ran the emergency room, seeing the whole range of problems. They would come over and help me, and I learned to suture them to take care of people. And when I came back to uh, my, um, my university, I started doing electives that would prepare me for a field, prepare me for this field. <clears throat> There was no specialty uh, training at that time, so you had to do a rotating internship to learn a little bit of everything, pediatrics, surgery, gynecology. And so I pursued that and, um, and then um, eventually started working in emergency room. Of course, they start you off with a night shift where there's no one to help you and you're the least experienced. Uh, so I had to kind of learn by uh, the seat of my pants and the consultants that I had. After about four years, um, and Dr. Woolman and I are sort of on the same track, they offered uh, specialty training. And those of us that had been in practice were allowed to challenge the boards. So I became board certified in emergency medicine. Mm. And I practiced for uh, now, I think it's 34 years. It's my 34th year of practice in mm. emergency medicine. A couple different hospitals, but 
basically um, doing nothing but that. Hmm. Robert, it's it, that's a great story. And yes, it, you were part of, uh, we both were part of the very beginning of a specialty. And it's great to see that. Uh, I'm not in that practice anymore. You're still in it. And I know that you're a history buff. So where do you see the history of emergency medicine, say from the beginning to now and maybe even a little into the future, since you're also a physics theoretical major? <laughs> well, it's an interesting history. Uh, originally, uh, emergency rooms were created to uh, provide an opportunity for physicians to build their practice. So they would take turns covering the emergency department. When people would come in, they'd come from their office over, make contact with patients, and then establish them as patients. Um, that wasn't survivable. And in the 70s, it began to be transformed. I think the original experiment was called the Philadelphia Group or something like that. And this was a group of community doctors who decided to practice nothing but in the emergency room. Uh, and that was revolutionary. It seems funny now, but that was revolutionary. Of course, they had no specialty training. Um, as time went on, um, the evolution both in healthcare, in treatments, and in uh, reimbursement actually pushed things in a different direction. Um, at first, people would come to emergency rooms for urgent care like problems. But over the, the next 15 to 20 years, um, there grew up various organizations, urgent care centers, clinics that would draw those away from the emergency department. Mm -hmm. So what Dr. Wolman and I saw in our careers was um, a fair amount of uh, not urgent, not serious cases coming to the emergency room and transforming to a lot more serious, um, where we had actually centers like trauma centers where people would skip other hospitals and come to us for specialty care. Mm -hmm. So the, uh, the level of uh, severity uh, evolved to much higher level. A lot of the less serious things was pulled away, except after hours. And the expertise that was required of us was continuously increased. Um, we went from calling in specialists to fix fractures to doing it ourselves. Um, the procedures became part of our practice, um, starting uh, central lines in people, defibrillating resuscitation uh, was all emergency, became the field of emergency medicine. Um, things like ultrasound uh, that were really a radiology specialty were brought into the emergency room so we could see a trauma patient, do an ultrasound, and within five minutes know whether they needed to go to the OR. So the, uh, the, the history of emergency medicine has been one towards regionalization like trauma centers, stroke centers, increasing acuity where we take care of sicker and sicker patients, and more responsibility for ER physicians really to do all the intensive work that's necessary in the first hour uh, of a very sick patient. We don't do inpatient work. Um, we never did, and I couldn't take care of a patient in the hospital I dealt with any competency. But the first hour of any emergency, um, I know how to deal with, and that's what our training is. I think the future of emergency medicine is really going to be um, the the treatment of episodic care of very sick patients. More and more, the less sick patients will be taken away from emergency departments, and we will be more intensive care, uh, where we do the complete workup, the resuscitation, and then admit patients to what will then be to hospitalists rather than, than doctors who come in from outside. Mm -hmm. So there's going to be a transition in, in who provides the medical care. But for emergency room physicians, 
it's just going to mean more uh, more acute care, which is really what we like to do. That was a really beautiful uh, mm -hmm. explanation of the timeline, including into the future. Uh, you know, it was very special. I think one of the other things that we did as a specialty, because we were so new and we were trying to define ourselves, we looked at every other field of medicine and we were the crisis of that of that specialty. But we also we questioned almost everything. Why? Why are you giving this drug? Why are you doing things this way? And we made I believe that we made most of the other professions or the specialties relook at some of the things that they did. And I think we helped to change actually uh, a lot of the practice of medicine. Uh, that's really true. Uh, prior to there being full-time emergency physicians, what was done in the emergency room really didn't come under scrutiny. Uh, you did what you were taught to do by your, uh, your professor or your, the doctor you followed. But now it's evidence-based medicine. Now we look at what the outcomes were and things that we thought were perfectly appropriate to do, no one does anymore. Uh, treatments have changed. We do the things that are, are proven to help. And like you say, Glenn, they, they actually, it actually has flowed back to the community where they started copying emergency medicine in that regard. Yeah, I think so. You know, you were also a medical director. And one of the uh, things that we like to do in this show is to show people that going into the medical profession, for example, or into the healing professions uh, is a great thing to do because it affords so much opportunity. As a medical director, what were you looking for in the qualities of having a really good physician? And I know using yourself as, as a guideline, uh, that would be perfect. So what, what did you look for in terms of somebody that came to, uh, apply to your hospital, other than the fact that they'd work the night shift for you? <laughs> well, above and beyond working the night shift, which I don't underrate that by any means. <laughs> uh, we were in a fortunate position in that we're in a kind of um, geographically isolated area at Santa Barbara, California, and it's a very desirable place to live. So we get a lot of applicants. So we were able to choose from uh, physicians and, and choose what we were, we were looking for. Typically, we would ask uh, new physicians that we would take on in our group to have some special little niche thing that they did better than anybody else. So we'd get someone in that knew a lot about trauma and trauma systems. Uh, we got someone in who was an ultrasound expert, um, others that were very exper experienced in procedures, others that were experienced in disaster medicine because the, um, an ER physician always heads up the disaster committee. We actually got someone from... Uh, New Orleans. He was in the hospital at, uh, at, during Katrina and is nationally renowned for some of the response that came up there. But the other thing we looked for was the humanistic qualities. As we'll probably talk about later, medicine is just not, not about knowing things. It's about kindness. It's about listening. It's about caring. And as a medical director, it's a real luxury to not have to take just someone who's willing to work there. Uh, we were able to weed out and pick the, the best of the best. And, and frankly, we did turn over a lot of positions when it turned out that it didn't work out. One of the best ways of screening is to call the previous hospital they worked at and ask to talk to some of the nurses, because the nurses know all about that caring and personality. And, and so that was one of the tools we used. That was uh, one of the tools I used to uh, realize what a great doctor you were. since. 
sometimes you never get to work with each other as emergency physicians. If you're not in a busy emergency department where you're a single doctor on, uh, you don't really get to work with your colleagues. You get to do that. But I've had many opportunities where I've spoken to nurses about working shifts with you and uh, the humanity part is very clear and they love that, of course. When when you go into medicine, especially emergency medicine, I know, at least in my experience, when you meet someone on the street or someone at a party and they say, what do you do? You say, I work in emergency department and they go, oh, wow, that's very stressful. So <clears throat> stress is an important part of what we do and you deal with that all the time. Something really bad happens you take care of it. It's very stressful. You still have to move to the next group of people being taken care of. How do you deal with that in the emergency department rapidly? Well, everybody deals with it in a different way. And I'll have to say after 34 years, I'm more relaxed, but I'm still stressed every shift I work. Uh, I guess it's people that choose this field um, must like a little bit of the adrenaline because you can never know it all. You never know when something's gonna come in where you don't know what to do or you do the wrong thing. So stress is, is part of the job. Um, you compartmentalize a little bit. Uh, there was a very famous um, uh, ER show that I think won an Emmy Award written by a doctor that uh, used to take, come up and take stories from us. And, and I remember it was, uh, I think, a mother who um, was sent out with a, a tubal pregnancy, came back and died. And, the last scene was the husband talking to the doctor. And I remember thinking when I saw this, it's very emotional. The thing that was missing is that that doctor had to come out of that, that incredible situation explaining his wife had just died. And then he had to go see somebody with a sore throat that was complaining because they had waited so long. That's part of it. It's hard to have an individual relationship with all our patients because there's another one waiting. And you start the experience over and over again. So part of it is compartmentalization. Um, part of it is um, just your, your personality. Some people can't do this job. Some people get so stressed out, they burn out. And there's all kinds of tips for burnout that I've used through, through my practice, and Glenn, you have too. Um, and um, um, I, I could go through it as kind of a separate little uh, uh, discussion. Give us but, one. Well... Uh, one of them is don't get mad at patients. Uh, a lot of physicians uh, in all practices, but particularly emergency medicine, because there's always people waiting. You're mad because someone's there and with a complaint that you th don't think is serious. It takes a lot of understanding to go into a room and try and understand why they're there because people always come for a reason. There's always, and it's always a good reason. It's amazing apart from maybe being pulled in by the police, which happens a lot in emergency room, there's always a good reason. And when you understand that people are different and they're there for good reason, you start out with no judgment of them. Judgmentalism is, is something that will stress you out forever. If you start getting mad at patients because you don't think they should be there, you're not going to last in this field. And that's a real big one. The that's other a great tip. The other thing is learn to listen. It's very interesting listening to people. Let them talk to you. Because once they realize you're listening and not rushing things along, and you can do it very fast if you're good. Once they realize that, that you're listening to them, the whole uh, mood changes. Uh, and it becomes a real person-to-person -person contact. 
once they realize that that you really are paying all your attention to them. So those are, those are just a couple of examples of things that, that I'll do. That's great. I remember uh, every shift I ever worked, just before my shift, I would have this one wave of nausea. Uh, and then it would disappear once I first started seeing people. But uh, again, you're right. The, the things that you said about judgment and listening, those, those are perfect. Because one of the, the real art in emergency medicine was to be able to take someone who was, a, who was in there having their worst nightmare. Very few people want to be there, although we could both remember that uh, there were people that do come into the emergency room because they want to be there. Uh, but it was uh, in listening to them and being able to take the take that situation and turn it into a positive thing, to take a child and have him laughing or her laughing while she's being sutured, getting stitches, is a, is a great part of, of that program. When you uh, go through medicine and, and when you see the, the entire range of humanity, is there something, some poignant story that you might share with us that, that affected you in medicine? Uh, I think the episode um, that most affected me in my whole career of medicine actually wasn't in emergency rooms. I got called to a patient's room outside the emergency department. And it was a doctor, I'll use his name actually, he's not alive anymore, Dr. DeSena. And he was a local professor of Portuguese literature. He was um, very widely read and apparently was up uh, for consideration for a Nobel Prize for the work he had done. And I'd been called twice to see him. And the first time I went in to see him, he was, he was a wonderful, distinguished man. I think he was in his 80s. He was pretty sick at that time. And his room was filled with books. He had books mm -hmm. everywhere. And I asked him what the books were for. And he said, I'm dying. And these are all the books I have to read before I die. So I can't talk very long. Wow. So, uh, so I, I left. Wow. And uh, the next day, by coincidence, I was called back because he had, he had died. And I went into his room. And it had been empty before. But this time I went back in there. The room was full of his students, his priest, his wife, his kids, probably 20 in all. They were all on the floor, and he, is, he was still in bed, expired. But everyone had one arm out touching him, mm. uh, completely silent and touching him. And it was almost like a gown, a flowing gown of arms and bodies that came, came down from his, his body. And it was, it was almost as if everyone had plugged in their USB port to him. Mm. To wow. receive all the energy that that he had, all the the greatness he had in his life to take away from him, and I actually made a couple of lifelong friends from that experience that I, I stayed in touch with for years and years afterwards, and that was of in, in poignancy. Um, that that was the the poignancy of, of dying with dignity for mm. me. Mm, beautiful, beautiful. That's it's almost a, a very uh, Catholic, very Portuguese Catholic ritual that they go through, which is, is being connected to, to the loved one that is there and uh, everyone in silence or in prayer, either, either form. That's fantastic. What a gorgeous story. Oh. As it turns out, I, I had a, uh, a death in my family recently and we did the same thing. We got the whole family there mm -hmm. and the moment of death, we were all there. We we're all holding on to her and uh, it was very emotional. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. How about a happy moment? 
Not that poignancy uh, isn't somewhat happy. Uh, you remember you a happy some, case? You want to hear some funny cases? Yeah, I do. We do. <laughs> and watch Christina's right. bounce. <laughs> uh, I've had a couple of them. Um, one of them was uh, was a very uh, overweight woman who was brought in by paramedics um, uh, with a call was a probable kidney stone. She was writhing in pain on the uh, on the bed when they brought her in and moving over to the bed. And she said that she had um, sat down on a couch and this pain started building up and got worse and worse and worse. So they put her on the bed and we're getting IV, they had IVs in, we're getting pain medication. And as I helped the paramedics push her onto the bed, she uh, kind of leaned forward and she was quite obese. And I saw something black in, in, in my vision. I leaned forward and I pushed her forward a little bit and there within a roll of her stomach on the side was a TV remote. <laughs> and I took the remote I took the remote out and she said, It's gone. The pain is gone. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> it was a TV remote that had gotten into her side somehow. <laughs> it's went along. It, these are stories that we tell and retell uh, over and over. It probably changes with every telling of it, but that's 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 the kind of thing that happens. A hero. Yeah, I was going to say she must have thought you were the most brilliant doctor around. You just cured her in a moment. <laughs> yeah, my uh, favorite story. I want, with before you go on, I wonder if in the uh, alternative world of medicine that would be a form of a remote healing. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, my favorite case was a man sitting on in a hallway bed. I walked by several times, and he had the strangest-looking burn on his face. I'd never seen quite like it. And I must have walked by him about 20 times, and each time I was thinking, I wonder what this is. And as it turned out, he became my patient. And so I asked him what happened. And I looked closer. It was clearly a burn. But it was this geometric, pointed, roundy uh, burn on his cheek. And he said, well, he said, my wife is away. And I said, yes. And he said, and I was watching the football game. And I said, yes. And he said, and I was ironing my shirt because my wife was <laughs> said, yes. And he said, phone rang. And put it to his ear and it had a iron burn to his cheek. Oh, no. <laughs> And uh, that's, uh, there's there's all lots of stories like this, but the uh, uh, the the other my other favorite story was it's, it's nothing dramatic here, but amusing. It was a drunk patient who was brought in by the police, sitting on the edge of the bed at the bottom of the bed. And I pulled the curtain back, and he was teetering back and forth, but he was able to hold himself up. He had a bump on his head, and any any person that's intoxicated with a head injury, you worry about bleeding inside their head because they may not remember it. So I was trying to assess his neurological status, and part of that is orientation. So I asked him dutifully, um, do you know where you are? And he looked me right in the eye, and he said, uh, yes. And I said, well, where are you? And he paused, and then he leaned forward, and he looked to the right, and he looked to the left, and sat back in. I said, well, do you know where you are? And he said, yes. And I said, well, where are you? Once again, he leans forward. This time he pulls the curtain back in the room so he can see down there. And I'm thinking, hey, this is pretty smart. He's really determining where he is and leans back again. And I said, um, so do you know where you are? And he said, yes. Now I'm thinking maybe he has a head injury. 
I said, so where are you? And he says, I'm right here. (laughs) (laughs) Hard to argue with him. He checked it out. He was right there. (laughs) (laughs) He GPSed himself. That's great. It's a great story. Then there's the the impossible story, the impossible injuries that happen. Um, uh, The 70-year-old man... uh, standing up on a limb of a tree with a chainsaw. No. He's cutting, <laughs> cutting branches. And suddenly he's cutting through a branch when he loses his balance and he falls about seven feet to the ground. Oh. And on his way down, the running chainsaw catches his thigh and puts about a seven-inch gash in it. He hits the ground hard in a sitting position. He got a little compression fractures of his back he hit so hard. Oh. It's there dazed for a minute. And then the limb that he broke <laughs> landed on his head and put a big laceration on the top of his head, knocking him backwards. No. Now, that's bad luck enough for one day. But this was admitted to the ICU for something completely different. The hornet's nest he landed on <gasps> 150 stings, which put him in the ICU. Is the Patient never admitted in our hospital for multiple bee stings. Oh, no. That's those hard luck stories that you could only see in an emergency department. <laughs> now we wonder where those cartoons come from, you know. <laughs> the neighbor that helped him out with a hose, uh, I said, well, how did you know? How did you know something had happened? And he said he was yelling at me. He said, well, well, well yelling. <laughs> and he said, bees. <laughs> <laughs> He was lying on the ground, bleeding to death, a head injury, and all he could think of was bees. Oh, oh no. Christina, this is, this is one of the, the best parts of actually our specialty, because when a group of us get together, every one of us that's worked in an emergency department over any period of time has stories like this, where it becomes almost a poker game. Uh, I'll see your bee story, and I will raise you uh, – one day I was working a shift in a kind of a rural area, and in the same day I saw I saw a ch- a child who was head butted by a llama, not you know the animal type llama. <laughs> I saw a second person that had a bite to the face by an emu. Oh. I saw a third person that was, I guess I would have to say, butted by a cow. The cow backed this person up into the fence post and the fourth person was bitten by a horse and kicked by a horse. And then the fifth person was actually choked by a dog. And this one was where uh, a dog was in the backseat of the car with the kid and he had a leash. The dog jumps out of the window and the leash wrapped around the kid's neck for a moment. So those are just some of those stories. Uh, Bob, I want to I want to start getting a little more serious and giving some people some knowledge here. We may get back to some more stories. I don't see how we can stop that, but uh, let's let's talk about some things that you might want people to know from the point of view of first out in the field. Either uh, give you a choice, either talk about something like what to do if you might be having a heart attack or a stroke, or what to do maybe if you come upon the scene of an accident and you're the only person there. Mm-hmm. How about something like that? Can you uh, enlighten us a little bit there, maybe with some advice? 
Yeah, it, it depends on the circumstances, obviously. Um, with um, heart attacks, um, a lot of people are now trained in CPR, which has been simplified to the point now where it's much easier to perform and we're getting more compliance with that. Trauma is a bit different. Um, there's not a whole lot, even as a physician, there's not a lot you can do when you're there. You can probably do more harm than good. Yeah. One thing that's important in trauma is to try and stabilize the neck, uh, particularly if they're having difficulty breathing or clear the mouth if possible. Um, but it's not a good idea in most cases to move the patient unless they're in a situation where something worse is going to happen, a burning car, for instance. But if you come across a bad accident, someone falls off a bike and they're unconscious, the best thing you can do is to hold them still. Uh, I remember coming across a surfer on the beach one time early in the morning, and he, had, uh, he was clearly knocked out and his neck uh, was badly hurting. So I built a, a mound on both sides of his head to keep him there on both sides of his body and then uh, ran to get a phone. I didn't have a cell phone with me and, and called the paramedics. And he actually had a spine fracture laying in the So um, th that's, there's not a lot you can do. That's what the paramedics are for. Uh, try not to move them and try not to let them move their neck if possible. Uh, if you know CPR, if you know how to clear an airway, those are things you can do. But as I say, even a physician doesn't have the tools. An ER doctor can't do much uh, other than stabilize things until they get help. Mm. Um, I think, um, well, I'll leave it at that. Well, that's good. So how about uh, somebody that uh, may be having a heart attack? They're at home. They're having chest pain. They're alone. Uh, they don't know what a heart attack is or something. Any ideas to give them some enlightenment into why they should do something or should they just take a Pepto-Bismol? <laughs> um, heart attacks um, don't always have pain. And the pain that you do have can be very different from one person to the other. Uh, in the ER, as, uh, as Dr. Wilmer well knows, we assume everything is one of the th three really serious causes of chest pain until proven otherwise. But at home, um, chest pain should always be seen in an emergency department. There's one really expensive drug that you can administer right away. This is the number one drug in heart attacks. Uh, of all the things we use in, in treatment of heart attacks, there's one little pill that stands out above all else, aspirin. Maybe hmm. aspirin or a regular aspirin has a tremendous impact on the mortality of someone who actually had a heart attack. It's bigger than anything else we do, uh, except perhaps uh, stents and you know, angiograms now. But that's the one medication you should always give someone. Even if they're allergic, if they say they're allergic, unless they had an anaphylactic reaction, uh, it is advisable to give someone with chest pain uh, a, uh, an aspirin. Then lay them down, uh, call 911, get help there and stay with them. If they pass out, then if you know CPR, um, these are the people that, that are most likely to survive from CPR. And if you can do it until the paramedics get there, they can do a more advanced treatment to get them back. Wow, that's really interesting. So so that's uh, aspirin should be part of our first aid kit at home then. It, it really should. If you have anyone elderly around, they should have aspirin around if they don't take it anyway. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But we also I, hear of a, a lot of, a lot of, well, we were just notified recently about a lot of women coming down with heart attacks as well. So, you know, of all different age groups as well. I mean, I'd hate to ask you what the cause is because <laughs> yours is, your specialty is in emergency medicine. So 
I guess at my age, I should have that bottle of uh, aspirin in the cupboard, huh? <laughs> Our, our, uh, the, the incidence of heart disease um, in men has been dramatically improved. In women, it's been improved, but not as dramatically. And we're not really sure why that's the case. Uh, but women um, have the uh, additional factor is they tend to have atypical symptoms, either no chest pain or atypical pain that people might brush off as, as heartburn. Uh, by the way, heartburn should never be a diagnosis made by a layperson. In fact, it's arguable that it should never be made by a physician. It's, it's hard to prove someone has heartburn until you prove they don't have the other things that imitate it. That's very interesting. That's a great point. You know, I would add something else, Christina, and for everybody that's listening, uh, having aspirin in your cupboard is very important, but uh, that assumes that all heart attacks will be happening right around your cupboard. So I would think that and suggest <laughs> that people actually carry aspirin with them in their purse or wallet or bag. Always carry one or two aspirin, one for yourself, of course, and one for uh, someone else. So, so, for example, if I am with, with someone and they are complaining about chest pains and, you know, you can, I mean, a lot of times they start getting quite flushed. I, I'm assuming because aspirin used to be used for headaches and everything, even if they weren't having a heart attack, that it's not going to hurt them in any way to have that aspirin. That's correct. That's correct. The aspirin is a painkiller, but it's it's a side effect of aspirin that does its uh, its work. Mm -hmm. Aspirin is the sticky things in your blood called platelets, less sticky, and it acts almost immediately after you take it. And it's the sticky platelets that will build up on a blockage in one of the coronary arteries in a matter of minutes uh, and can convert uh, a little rupture of a plaque into a complete heart attack and even death. Mm -hmm. That the aspirin makes your blood kind of slippery and tends not to block off a clot. Mm, so that's what they mean when people say, oh, it just thins my blood out. <laughs> it's, it's thinner. Right. Is, is that also the case? Because I know that uh, I had this issue with softballs and baseballs when I was a teenager where they just loved my head. I, mm -hmm. I don't know why that I would turn my head one way and a softball would hit me on the side of my head. <laughs> And I wasn't even playing the game most of the time. So I would basically black out on the floor. I would see stars. And of course, the first thing, you know, go check it out. At, uh, not so much at the emergency. You know, in Canada, it's not as busy as here. <laughs> so usually the doctor, you know, the GP could take us in. And the first thing that he would say is, you know, take the aspirin. So does it work in that same manner where, you know, they're concerned with the concussion and... <laughs> Actually, uh, that's exactly wrong. Oh, that's good. <laughs> uh, in fact, yeah, we have a trauma service at my hospital. And if, you are, if you're hit on the head and you have a loss of consciousness and you're on aspirin, uh, we have, you're met by four surgeons uh, and a neurosurgeon is alerted. <gasps> because it's such a good blood thinner that a small bleed can turn into a big bleed from, from a concussion. So we actually, if you are knocked out on aspirin, we give plasma, which contains new platelets uh, to prevent you from bleeding. Even before we get the CT scan, we'll give you that. So we have to reverse the effect immediately. So exactly what we see that. Wow, that's really interesting. So that, that shows you the difference between years and years ago and now. <laughs> that's right. That's what emergency okay. medicine has taught us. So aspirin for, for chest pains and heart, possible heart attacks. But not for head injuries. Not for head injuries. 
Okay. So what do we do with head injuries then? You know, I mean, you, you have a child, you know that they bump their heads so often and sometimes quite hard. So, so what do you recommend for, for something like that when someone gets knocked out? <laughs> it, it's actually a large field of uh, research around pediatric head injuries. Uh, there's a couple issues. Who should be seen? Mm -hmm. And do you do scans to see if they're bleeding? The uh, brain of a child is much more susceptible to the effects of radiation uh, than an adult because it's uh, unlike adult brains, their brains are still growing, so they have growing cells. So uh, we are making every effort in emergency medicine to not do scans and to find those criteria that you can safely forego doing a scan. Mm -hmm. In terms of being seen, um, the, any child uh, who is altered in any way after a head injury or any child that receives a, a head injury from a mechanism that's dangerous, that is, could be a lot of force, a fall from a height, uh, a hit by a heavy vehicle like bumping into a car, uh, or if there's any question in your mind at all, um, err on the side of going to an emergency room to be checked. Mm -hmm. The question of scanning is uh, much more subtle and complicated. Um, it's said that a child, uh, even with a loss of consciousness, who has a normal neurological exam is responding normally, without vomiting uh, can or any neurological findings, can probably be safely watched at home without a scan. Hmm. Sometimes you won't do a scan and you'll admit for observation, but sometimes you can actually go home. Uh, there's a lot of efforts these days to try and decrease the amount of radiation that patients receive, largely because uh, we the, the population that exists right now have only had C CT scans for 30 years. It's a very useful tool, and a child is going to have probably uh, tens of CT scans in their lifetime. So we're making every effort to avoid that. Mm -hmm. And frankly, mm -hmm. CT scans have not improved survival in children's head injuries anyway. Mm -hmm. um, some not as dramatic as you might think. So we're trying to use less of them. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's a great point. Thank you. Yeah, and for those of you that are interested in the radiological aspect, uh, you can check back on one of our shows where we interviewed uh, Dr. Daniel Fox, uh, who talked about radiation and making decisions about scans and MR and not MRIs, but scans and plain films and a number of other things. Bob, uh, I wanted to talk for a few moments about some of the other types of things that you do and how. Uh, your influence has helped uh, others from emergency medicine. You got involved with the American Heart Association, right? Right, right. And, and at that time, uh, what kind of uh, information did you bring from the emergency department that you think might have changed things in our society? Well, the effect, at least a local improvement in care was at that time when I joined, um, we, defibrillators were widely used in the emergency department. And the technology of automated external defibrillators had just come into um, prominence. And so working through the Heart Association, we established a local program uh, of public access um, defibrillation and training in this. It began with the local health club. A lot of uh, employers were afraid of the liability associated with their staff using it. Um, and then we um, uh, spread it out to other areas and ended up placing about 20 defibrillators throughout the community. Mm. Um, the real uh, joy of this was I have now seen three patients who in the emergency room who were defibrillated uh, by, one, by defibrillators that uh, our efforts got placed. Mm. 
and, and they were alive because of it. Um, and uh, a very rewarding experience. Mm. Uh, defibrillators are commonplace. They're almost required in most workspaces. The success rate is a little less than we thought it was um, for various reasons. But clearly, uh, early defibrillation is the key to survival, particularly from heart attacks. Yeah, I, I remember going to a conference where a, an esteemed cardiologist said the two best things that have ever happened in cardiology were electricity and aspirin. <laughs> <laughs> Although we know that's true, and there's a lot more, as you say. Uh, one of the other things that you do is uh, you do some work in another country. Uh, you uh, go with a group of uh, doctors and dentists and nurses to uh, travel to Mexico in a, in a group called Aero Mexico, correct? Bad Spanish pronunciation, but right. <laughs> uh, enlighten me, Senor. Uh, it's a, a local uh, charity group uh, that is made up of a lot of pilots and doctors, nurses, volunteers. Uh, I've been, I'm on the board now. I've been uh, with the groups for about 25 years. We fly from uh, Santa Barbara, California, just north of Los Angeles, to about three quarters way down Baja, and we serve uh, small communities there. We've gone from place to place over the years. Uh, we have to deal with the politics, Mexican politics. Sometimes they get kicked out uh, and have to move somewhere else. Mm. But we can we conduct clinics on a monthly basis, uh, a medical clinic, a dental clinic, and then any specialty clinics that we can get to come along with us. Um, some of the best things, the dental work is fabulous. Uh, in fact, we get people down that can build uh, dentures for people so they can eat meat for the first time or they can eat whatever they want to for the first time. Uh, we, have, um, we bring glasses down to fit people with glasses who have not had that opportunity their whole life. Mm -hmm. uh, the medical clinic, we treat uh, the long-term care, diabetics, high blood pressure, and we supply them with medication, a lot of from Direct Relief International, which is a wonderful uh, charity based here in town. Um, and then things you wouldn't think of, hearing aids, um, people that are deaf. We've had a couple of deaf people, young children, had never heard, had worked out their own language with their family. We gave them hearing aids so they could hear for the first time. And we actually have a video of an eight-year-old hearing her parents' voice for the first time. Mm. A wonderful experience. It's got its, its ups and downs. We can't always fly there or landing on dirt tracks, and it's a little bit dangerous. Um, but uh, it's a great group, and it's it's uh, served underserved communities for years and years. We're not the only one. There are, there are many communities in the southern part of the United States that send medical groups um, down on a regular basis. What's the feeling like when you're flying over the uh, the little dirt runway and you see the all of the townspeople dressed up uh, in their very nicest clothes? all on the line to greet you. How's that feel? It's really great. They do. They tend, they come to the runway where they'll drive one of the three cars in this village out there to, to meet us to help haul the equipment in. All the kids will be there because they get to see planes land. It's really exciting. Uh, and, and another interesting thing is because we don't always come, depending on the weather, they will wait until they hear the planes fly over. And most people are from out in the countryside and little ranches. And once they hear the planes, they get their horses out. They often go by horse rather than car. And you'll see them coming into town with their horses at the end of the, at the, end of the street, uh, having made it just in time to see the doctors there. Oh, that's wonderful. 
frustrating and it's rewarding. Um, you there's just a limit to what you can do for them, and they they bring people in that sometimes you can't help. Uh, like once they brought a dead person in, um, but you wish you could do more. But at least it's some access to healthcare, and they're very appreciative of it. Mm -hmm. And how long do you stay there when you go? We do a weekend. We come down on Friday. Um, we do uh, about a 10-hour clinic on Saturday and then fly home on Sunday. So you really don't have to miss one day of work. Mm. That's magnificent. <clears throat> ah, so many things that you do. It's uh, it's great, uh, all for the benefit of all of us. Listen, I want to ask you, uh, we normally ask our guest for a health tip, uh, something that you found in your life uh, and on your journey that you could share with the rest of us. I'm guessing in your case, since you're such a specialist, you probably have an entire show of health tips. <laughs> <laughs> you want to share a health tip with us? Well, my health tip is uh, addressed to everybody. I suspect that the audience that listens to this broadcast, for the most part, doesn't need um, a uh, tip on diet and exercise, but here's something. <laughs> You'd be surprised. <laughs> here's something that I think everybody can can live with. Um, I'm, I'm a diabetic, so I had to change my diet, and it really made a difference. I, I should have done it long ago, but it really made a difference to my life, my sense of well-being, even apart from treating the, the diabetes. And it's something that's very simple. Uh, there's two issues about conditioning and uh, weight, and those are important things in today's uh, in today's health market. We live a long time. We can cure a lot of diseases, but if you're not eating and not exercising, all those uh, stents in your heart aren't going to make you live much longer. And and the tip is pretty simple. One is the qu the quantity of food you eat. Um, sort of like mindfulness and meditation. Mm -hmm. Mindfulness in eating is important. And here's a simple little tip. The quantity of food that anyone should eat in a day is the equivalent of roughly nine fistfuls of food. Mm. When you sit down and have a meal, look at your plate. And typically, it's two or three. And just make a mental note of that each time you eat or have a snack. And have you, are you eating the right amount? Because if you do that, your satiation changes a while. And, and when you get up around seven or eight fistfuls, your mind is kind of adjusted to the fact that you're going to stop there. And that's a great diet tip. It, it works uh, on several people I've tried it on. It works great. As to what to eat, um, very complex field, with a lot of misinformation. And I'm not about to go through all the best things for you. Some of the best things for us, we don't eat even if we know we should eat. Mm -hmm. But here's a simple tip. Make half your plate at every meal a colored food. Now, I assume this isn't red dye number three, but <laughs> natural food. If you make a point of doing that, you have to force yourself to do it at first. But you're going to push off the plate some of the things that are not so good for you, and you're going to put on your plate almost every colored food is good for you. <laughs> That's colored. I'm not quite sure why that is. But if you just remember that and push the stuff that's that's white and, and rice and, and potatoes and other things like that and make it colored, uh, you'll eat a much more healthful diet than mm. that. That is the simplest uh, tip I can give you for diet. Exercise is for conditioning, not for losing weight. People exercise to lose weight. If you do that, you will gain it back again. You will gain it back. That's a guarantee. You exercise for conditioning, and you uh, eat a good diet for your weight. 
You keep that in mind. Don't go out and try and lose 15 pounds by running 20 miles. All you'll do is end up getting knee surgery earlier. <laughs> uh, the thing I like about this is that it's simple. It's not in great detail. And every time you sit down to eat or go to do some exercise, it applies. Well, that's that's the long-awaited tip <laughs> that I'm giving you. Wow. There's, there's one other thing that I think Glenn and I would know, especially Glenn knows from uh, years of experience in the ER. And that is things that we do when we're young have a profound impact on our quality of life when we're older. And it takes the wisdom of experience over many years um, in the emergency room and personally to realize that uh, running marathons sounds really healthy, uh, but the majority of people that run marathons have knee surgery at some time later in life. Mm. For a quality older life, you really have to think long and hard about the activities that you do. They're going to wear down your joints. So those are the pounding exercises of, of running, those kind of things. Um, and um, preserve it. Pick activities that are not greatly stressful to your joints because they will give out eventually. And it's kind of a sad testament. People are so healthy in their, in their youth, and they end up uh, being immobilized by their degenerative disease later in life. I don't know if that tip is going to fall on deaf ears or not, probably would have when I was 30 years old. But it really makes a difference to choose your activities uh, that are healthful and not destructive to your body. Mm -hmm. That's it. Those tips actually were exactly what you said. They were, they were brilliant in their simplicity and visualization, and, and clearly they're helpful. So I really appreciate that. Uh, I, they, they were great. I mean, in many of the areas that I work, exercise, nutrition, uh, stress management, and things like that, yes. uh, those were just great tips. Well, Robert, I, I have to tell you, I, I've been looking at my fist and I'm going, nine fistfuls? Well, I'd gain weight on that one. <laughs> I've got pretty big hands here, and I'm like, wow, that's a lot of food. <laughs> you... It, difference because you're not going to you're not going to be motivated to eat any more than that but the average person when they look at their fist they probably eat 50 percent more and just in quantity mm -hmm. now obviously there's factors like you know how much calories are in each one if it were nine fistfuls of ice cream it wouldn't be good but in practice it, <laughs> it is that because food is overall an average amount of calories per fistful if you will mm -hmm. you know i had heard uh just a few uh about Four years ago or so, or so uh, a Japanese friend of mine had said uh, her mother had taught her that on every meal or every day, as long as you keep eat things that are within the primary color palette, the primary and the secondary color palette, you'll stay healthy. Exactly. That's the same kind of tip. It's so simple. Yeah. It's easy to follow. Yes, yes. You know, but, but healthy, as you say, fresh foods that are, you know, of those colors, not uh, manufactured or candy and things like that. So and it's got to be something to that colored food, right? It's got a lot of phytonutrients in the chemistry of mm. the of the colored foods. Uh, Robert, we've covered a lot of things, some things in the emergency department, your your own journey, heart and soul of medicine, some clinical things. Is there anything that when you were preparing for this program you wanted to talk about but we didn't get to? And this might be an opportunity if you have something else that you want to leave with our global audience. 
or just with me and Christina. <laughs> we won't tell anyone else. Yeah, there are a couple of things. Um, you, you had asked uh, about what lessons uh, that I learned in practice um, of medicine, and some of these apply more to doctors, but but here's some of the things I wanted to share with, with, with your audience. Um, one is that uh, a, care, a person who, who provides health care um, uh, must show respect and honesty to, to patients. Uh, it amazes me sometimes how dishonest doctors are when they make up a diagnosis that isn't real. Mm -hmm. uh, you have to learn to admit when you don't know something, and maybe you have to be experienced enough to know that nobody knows what the problem is. When you're inexperienced, maybe you're afraid to admit it because a better doctor would know what it is. But throughout your, throughout your life, you have to be honest with patients. They respond to it better than making up diagnosis or putting a name on something you don't really know what it is. Um, secondly, I don't judge people. I think I mentioned that before. It's incredibly important. The third thing I learned, and this helped me uh, live with uh, the stress of an emergency department, is understanding the role of anxiety and, um, and hypochondriasis in illness. Uh, and those are two different things in some respect. Anxiety, when I look down the list of patients in an emergency room at any time I'm there, I'll sometimes go through and pick out how many are there because of an anxiety. It's at least 50% at all times. And you have to understand that because alleviating, alleviating anxiety has to do with uh, being honest to patients, uh, to be understanding, to be kind, uh, and use your expertise to, to make them feel better about what brought them in. Uh, and that, that makes me a better doctor knowing that. In a more complex sense, hypochondriasis, which is a over-surveillance of your own body uh, that brings a lot of people, maybe half the people in the emergency room are there because of that. I came to understand that that's a personality trait. It's actually one of the, uh, it makes up 20% of the Minnesota multifaceted inventory or multi-personality inventory test. And there's a reason for that. People are born with uh, attention to their own symptoms and others are born with inattention to it. And once you understand that, then you forgive the people who come in with complaints that would never bring you in. They're different people, except that they're that they that they're, they're they interpret their bodily inputs different than you. And again, don't be mad at them. That's who they are, and that will never change. And you can live with that. And and it makes it uh, that patient comes in for the sixtieth visit in the last three years. I now can walk in and understand that that person has hypochondriasis and I can live with that and I can, I can treat them better because I accept that's who they are. And um, I think that those are the, the real things I learned. There are no cures uh, for most of our patients. Uh, people that come in the emergency room or go to a doctor's office, there's rare conditions that you can really cure. Uh, I think your kindness to the patient, your, your expertise and your spending time explaining problems is what most people are there for. And even in my own personal experience, I've gone to specialists and they just reassured me and that's really all I needed. That is a form of medicine and you have to understand that. So those are some of the things I've learned over the years I want to share with you. Mm, beautiful. That was a great sharing. Mm -hmm. Really good. And I know that uh, people that watch this show at other times or tune in on their podcasts or after listening to Trinity of Life, you know, the next day with Christina on her show, and they listen to these over time, they learn more and more. And I have a feeling people 
may listen to some of the things you said over and over again because as you said before sometimes it's the experiential nature but hopefully some people will learn some of the great uh, wisdom that you've shared with us and at this time I would like to uh, thank our very special guest Dr. Robert Gayu for sharing his expertise and wisdom with us I also want to thank all of my healers and teachers for allowing me to be on the journey that I'm on. And uh, I look forward to meeting all of you again with Christina next week as we search another quadrant of the healthcare galaxy. And until that time, I wish you all optimal health. And thank you so much, uh, Bob. Thanks, Glenn. Thanks, Christina. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's been such a pleasure and honor to have you with us. And I can't wait to get you back. I need to hear more stories. <laughs> I look forward to it. And of course, we'd like to thank you, our audience, for supporting us here um, at yogahub.tv. Um, join us live every Tuesday at 10.30 a.m. Pacific Standard Time, 1.30 um, p.m. Eastern Time, and uh, as well as Trinity of Life, which airs on Wednesdays at 11 a.m. Pacific Standard Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time. And I invite you all to connect with our wonderful medical guide, Dr. Glenn Woolman, here at myyogahub.com forward slash G Woolman, and on Twitter, which is at Glenn Woolman, one word, and of course, through his own site, glennwoolman.com, where you can learn about his metaphor square breath that he used while you know, whenever he got a little anxiety there. And we still continue to use here at Yoga Hub. <laughs> Thank you, everyone. And until we meet again, namaste. Oh, the engineer is coming on now. <laughs> wow, Bob, no one has ever been able to do this before. Yeah. <laughs> Get our engineer. Will there be a sighting? Yeah. Uh, Bob, what I'm going to do is I'm going to hang up on you, <laughs> and then you're going to just call back in on Skype if you don't mind, and that's okay. reset the connection. Okay. Okay, but when you and I are staying on, so. <laughs> yes. Yes. You know, we can keep talking though, correct? Oh, we can keep talking. Yes. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's it's fascinating to. Uh, one of the great things about choosing emergency medicine as a field is that usually when you work, you work, and when you're off, you're off, unless you're an administrator like Bob and I were, where then we have to be concerned with things all the time. But uh, as part of a lifestyle in emergency medicine, uh, when you're working your shift, that's your shift. And when you're not there, most of the time it's too late and to come in unless there's some kind of a mass casualty type of incident, you know, a bus load of 50 people that are all hemophiliacs <laughs> run into, uh, you know, a train, uh, that's carrying hazardous materials. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So then everybody gets called in, but for the most part, your time is your own. And it's great, uh, because many, uh, emergency department physicians use that time to do a lot of things. They know their specialty is a good one. And, and that's why when there are disasters that happen around the world, you see a tsunami here or you see an earthquake there, 
many times it's uh, local emergency department physicians that work as a group. You know, sometimes if one or two uh, doctors in a group uh, feel that it's a good idea, say, to go to uh, an earthquake area, then the other doctors in the group kind of tie it in and uh, cover those shifts so that, that those people can go and help other people. And right. that's, a, that's a great humanitarian part of the emergency department. Mm -hmm. Have you ever been in an emergency department? Myself? Yes. Yes. As a, as a patient. As, as a, a patient. Mm, no, long, well, no, long, long, long time ago. It's always nope. bringing other people in there yeah. and, and uh, you know, I, 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 I love the adrenaline rush in there, though, I have to say. We all do. Yeah, I do. I, it's like, um, I, I believe that if I ever became a doctor, it would no doubt be what you guys are doing. <laughs> yeah, I, I believe it's the best field or the best specialty mm. in, in medicine. It mm. offers so much.